Welcome back to the Tag Along with a Pro podcast. I'm Nick Karwaski, and today we have a great episode for you. But before we introduce our guest, I wanted to let you know that our short and sweet rowing sessions are back. You can book James Dietz, Lane Maher, or myself, Nick Karwaski, every other Monday to answer your training or technical questions. Find a slot for you and get curated rowing advice from us. You can find the link in our show notes or at tagalongwithapro.com slash community programs. Today's guest is an accomplished rowing pro and has recently completed a world record journey that took her from rowing Olympic trials to crossing the Pacific Ocean. Please welcome Sophia Dennison Johnston. Cool. Um, all right, welcome back to another episode of the Tag Along Podcast. My name is Nick Karwaski. We got Scott Del Vecchio here and a very cool guest today um, with a lot of rowing history. Sophia Dennison Johnston is an American high performance rower and a deep tissue and orthopedic massage therapist. Originally from Berkeley, she rowed Division One for the UCLA Bruins. She went on to compete for the U23 US national team at the World Championships. Since her last race at the Olympic trials, Sophia jumped on the opportunity to row with three other women from, and I'm not kidding you, San Francisco to Honolulu and set a new world record. Sophia, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Nick, so much for having me. Um, so just to kind of, I, I know there's so much to cover here, um, but and you've done so much in the past two to three years, but I want to rewind a little bit and ask kind of, how did you get involved in, in rowing in sports in general? Yeah, so um, I've always been a total mover and groover, and I've also always kind of been someone who uh, kind of carves my own path, like does whatever I think is the cool thing to do, um, regardless of what everyone else is doing. So when I was a little kid, I was in gymnastics and realized I really liked the bar but in gymnastics, they make you do everything. They make you do the vault and like the balance beam. And I was like, this stuff's scary. I just like the bar. How do I just do the bar? And I saw my cousin do a trapeze performance one day. And I was like, oh my God, that's just the bar. It's also gymnastics, but with no rules. And so I did that. I basically from like nine to 13, I was a very serious circus performer. Um, I trained 15 hours a week and Whoa. I actually just burnt out of that whole arena. So I had a, this really weird background as a kid of just like being a really intense athlete from a young age in a niche sport. And when I burnt out and needed something new, someone told me, Hey, you should try rowing. It's you have really strong arms. <laughs> um, I had no idea that as you know, the massive height of five, four and the most strength I had in my legs was to keep them straight while I was hanging from stuff. Um, I was actually not cut out for being a rower, but, um, at my learn to row day, a boy challenged me to an erg race that was like 200 meters. And he was like, I'm a boy, so I'm going to beat you. And I beat him. And like, you know, the rest is history. I was committed and, That's so cool. and I've always kind of, yeah, I've always kind of been the, the kind of person where when I get interested in something, I take it very seriously, you know, not in like a, not in like a in a negative way, but just kind of, I want to be the best I can. And that's the attitude that I pursued rowing with. And for a long time, I think that manifested as um, I kind of got this idea put upon me that I then just totally hung on to onto, which was, Hey, your body types, the wrong body type for the sport. And my goal was to prove everyone wrong. Um, and that took me pretty far, but at some point I realized I was really unhappy 
um, because I was waiting for other people to validate that I was good enough. And, you know, after college, I did some soul searching and realized I needed a different goal. So I kind of, I was going through actually like a mental training book for rock climbing uh, with my sister. Cause I was like, this isn't about me. It's about someone else. And then I was like, oh my God, this is totally about me. And um, I picked, I picked mastery of my craft and I didn't believe it at the time, but I just kind of said it over and over again. I said, my goal is to master my craft and just be as good as I can be, whatever that is. And um, eventually I ended up moving to Santa Barbara. Um, my coach moved here and the training environment was amazing. I was on this beautiful lake in the middle of the mountains, no other rowing community in sight. No one's watching. There's no one to tell me like, Hey, I noticed that you went really fast today or whatever. And I just realized that I did love rowing. Like I didn't need someone else to see it. I didn't need a result to prove it. And it was a total game changer. So you know, I had, you know, a season basically of racing after moving to Santa Barbara, which culminated in Olympic trials. And it was by far my best performance ever. I was able to perform my best and I just had fun. And I realized I was ready for an intermission. I was like, I proved what I needed to prove to other people, to myself. And I love this sport, but I also, my identity goes beyond this. And I've said no to every facet of my identity, except for rowing for the last decade or longer. And I'm ready to say yes to some stuff. So I decided to take a full year off minimum um, from racing and training. And at that point, uh, Jason Caldwell, the owner of lat 35, which is the company that basically paid for this whole thing to happen and helped us have access to mentorship and lots of other stuff. Um, Jason called me up and basically said, um, we, I knew him already and had been talking to him before. And he said, DJ, I want lot 35 to have a women's team. And I think you're the right fit. And so I became the founding member of the women's team. And I didn't know what it was going to take. I didn't know what it was going to turn into, but I knew I was ready to say yes to something new and it excited me. And so I did. And here we are a couple months later and it happened. So that's really, that's really interesting that you, that he, he was like, Oh, you're, you're, you're the right fit for this. Right. Um, when you've been told your whole life that you're you're not, uh, I feel like I can relate a little bit to you because I was always in between a little bit too big for the lightweight stuff, a little, and definitely too small for the heavyweight stuff. But I feel like we all kind of were grinding to try to fit into a, uh, a, a shape that wasn't meant for us. Um, and that's, and I feel like it's, there's a, we're in a really cool moment in, in sports history where people are inventing um, new sports or in, inventing new ways to do a sport that actually make them ha- happy. And it's really cool to hear that you, you know, you kind of looked the other way and said, you know, I want to do something different, something that actually makes me happy instead of like, oh, I should follow the traditional path of a national team rower or an Olympic rower or whatever. I had the same, I had the same thought process, except, uh, I was, I'm six, five, 200 pounds and was a runner and it would come from a rowing background. So my, my thing was opposite. I was bigger and taller and heavier than most other distance runners. So it's, I was always kind of like, it just, it never really crossed my mind. I was just like, no, this is what I'm doing. And I like it and I'm good at it and keep going with yeah. it. And just to point it out so that people kind of can put them when it comes to numbers that San Fran to Honolulu, the coastal rowing record is 2,400 
nautical mile voyage. And you guys completed that in 34 days, 14 hours and 11 minutes. And I mean, obviously extreme winds, rough seas, uh, you guys packed all food, all your own fuel. Uh, and there are four of you and you took turns rowing in two hour shifts and slept an average of like 90 minutes a day. Is that more or less capturing? It was 90 did? minutes every shift. So okay. you okay. get six shifts, you know, and it's, it's maybe not 90 minutes every shift because you have to do everything that is not rowing happens in your off time. So whether that's feeding yourself, cleaning yourself, cleaning the boat, and then sleeping. So some shifts you get 90 minutes, some shifts you get 20. It just depends on what's needed. And that's the crazy thing about this journey is the rowing was like the easy part. I was like, I know how to row. I don't know how to freaking navigate an ocean. I don't know what the survival skills are in case everything breaks, you know, and it was, that's what made it so exciting was it was this learning opportunity. And to put it into perspective, we broke this world record only by 24 hours. You know, the women who did this before us, only We're by 24 hours? That's, that's yeah, this so was a much serious time. record. Oh, that's in so 34 days. Time. You know, it's not like this is one of those things where there's a record because it's the first people who did it. It's like sure. this is a record sure. because the women who did it were experienced ocean rowers. They'd crossed oceans before in record time. They were sailors. They understood it. And what we had was I'm an athlete and I know how to work really freaking hard. And so to be able to channel those skills into it's not just working hard at sitting on the erg, it's working hard at learning what I need to learn, making sure I know how to talk on radio. If there's a ship that's on a collision course, or, you know, if we think that the steering is broken, troubleshooting it and making sure the boat's in a safe position, it's not going to be capsized that we can actually fix the auto tiller arm when it breaks. Like it's kind of all of these other things aside from just sitting in the boat and pulling. And the funny thing is, when you're training for another sport, you're actually gaining those skills too, if you pay attention, but you, it can be so easy to just get tunnel vision on the fitness. And it's like, this is not all that goes into being successful in any sport. It's all about managing your life. And, you know, I would say to what you said and what Scott said, it's like, Scott, you're the right size. Like, you know, there's not one thing that works. And I think I was actually just talking to Christine yesterday, catching up and Christine Cavallo and we were just saying like, there needs to be a different archetype of an athlete, you know, of someone who's just, and, and we need to be able to see this and recognize, you know, there actually are this archetype of athletes, the people who don't fit the mold, there are people who are doing their own thing, but recognize like, you know, that's not the wrong way. And there isn't a right way, whatever way is right for you is the right, right. way. And I think it's up to us as athletes to, to decide that, you know, that's our culture, we're going to do what's best for us. And that's going to be what's best for our performance. Yeah, that's well said. I have a tiny little detail question about the boat itself. Did you guys yeah. have like your own compartments that were like, this is your two foot by four foot area that you have? Like, how, how did that space compartmentalize? Yeah, like sharing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, we basically had like a stern cabin and a bow cabin and whichever cabin you slept in was based off of um, your roles and responsibilities on the boat. So I was the skipper um, and I was also navigation and medic. And so the cabin that I was in had the, you know, the chart plotter in it. It had a lot of the communication equipment so I could communicate with our land team. Whereas the people in the bow cabin, like Libby, for example, ran the water maker every day, which is um, electronic. It converts seawater to salt water. And so, you know, if you're going to turn on the water maker, you should probably live next to it. Um, so then within our cabins, 
we would kind of have just pockets on the side and that's where we kept all of our stuff. All of my stuff fit into a 30 liter backpack um, for the whole row. But um, yeah, I mean, you just try and be respectful and keep your stuff in your little corner. And um, we had a team meeting every day where we checked in with each other. And if there's something bothered you, that was your chance to say like, Hey, there are those grievances right there. but yeah, very small court living quarters, but also you don't have that much stuff, so it doesn't get so skipper, medic, navigator, water maker, obviously rowing. What were some of the other positions? Um, yeah, so like one thing, for example, was the began, which is um basically a satellite that we or um like this little thing that you aim at a satellite in order to get Wi-Fi. Um, it's not very strong Wi-Fi, so you can't like download a playlist off of it, but that's how we were able to send footage back to our land team. That's why they were posts on social media from us out at sea. So someone had to actually get the device, aim it at a satellite and like keep it aimed at the satellite while you were doing whatever, sending whatever you needed to send. So that was one of the roles. Um, yeah, the water maker. There's also in case of emergency, we have a parachute anchor or just a giant headwind. Um, and that's what would keep us from drifting too far away. So we actually never deployed it, but the people in the bow cabin where you would hook it onto the bow line, they were the people who drilled in our preparation, like, okay, we're going to be the ones setting up the pair anchor. So kind of things like that, just troubleshooting, um, having a plan for when things go wrong about who's going to do what, and then making sure that you're positioned on the boat in a place where you can access that job immediately if it's necessary. So one example so is our auto tiller arms broke a lot. Um, so kind of having this, um, we just had conditions that it was really having to fight a lot. And, um, you know, having a plan, you know, whoever's in the cabin, take the arm off, put it on standby. Whoever's in the stern seat, grab that hand steering and direct. Whoever's in the bow, you're rowing, you're getting the boat perpendicular to the waves. You're making sure the boat's in a safe position so that whoever's in the cabin can start troubleshooting and figuring out what's wrong. So that's, you know, one example of something that needs to happen like that. And if it doesn't, you get turned sideways and you're at the greatest risk of capsizing. So, you know, those are things that you, you have to think about before and you drill and you practice and you make sure that you're ready. And that's why when, you know, we have strangers that are like, oh, you're crazy. You're just doing this crazy thing that you've never done. And you're like, dude, you don't even know like how much we plan for this. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm crazy, yeah. but I'm not stupid. Like I'm crazy enough to plan it. I'm crazy enough to prepare for it but we're not going right. into this right. unprepared. When you finished, how many hours or days after did you do your next workout? Oh my gosh, uh, still there. Um, I tried going to the gym like two days ago. So that would be five days, six days after. That's it. And oh yeah, I tried doing, I mean, it's really just like my partner when I go to the gym and I was like, I'll go with you. And, um, I tried, I picked up a 12 kilo kettlebell and started doing squats and just started crying. I was like, I'm so weak. And <laughs> he was like, duh, <laughs> you're not weak, but like, right. what are you doing? Like, of course you're going to feel, you know, tired or mm. sleepy. And the crazy thing is actually, I think the muscles are there, you know, my body's really fit, but my central nervous system is so run down that and just emotions, you know? Um, and I think it's, it's just a lesson, right? Cause I can preach all I want about nurturing and taking care of yourself. And then there I am going and trying to do a workout five days after crossing that ocean. Um, yeah, I tried, I think it's, it's going to take a while. We'll see. Yeah. 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 
I think you're allowed more than five days. I yeah. think that's <laughs> very much. Um, I'm on the beach walk yeah. right now. I'm doing beach walks every day. So I think he was going to ask about like, you guys know each other from CRC and UCLA. Uh, you have like a good idea or that gave you a good idea of the type of athlete you were, but you know, any athlete who plays at that level in college, especially in their college experience, like, did you know you were going to, when you graduated, that you were going to try to go for the national team or uh, even try for, for the Olympics? Like what was the mentality once you like, were getting to be a junior, senior and then graduating? Yeah. My mentality starting in high school was pretty much just go so hard that I burn out so that I can do all the other cool things I want to do in life. Um, and I just kept surprising myself by not burning out. Um, and what basically what happened was the summer of 2017 or in, in 2017, at some point, I, number one, stepped on a scale for the first time in a long time and realized I was a lightweight. And number two, started working with a registered dietitian who um, helped me a lot in both mindset and performance. And I started getting fast. And I kind of just realized that there was another level untapped for me and that my potential was a lot higher than I thought it was. And I was just kind of on this pursuit to uncover that. And I chased it really, really, really hard. And then my senior year, I overdid it and fractured my ribs right before our spring season started and ended up missing most of my uh, senior season. Um, I still made the U23 team that summer, but you know, my fastest 2K was over 14 seconds off my PR. Um, and I just knew that I wasn't, that wasn't me at my best. And since that kind of, you know, that was the underlying goal, like, yeah, it was prove everyone wrong, but it was also like, I'm not going to quit before I've gotten to my best. And I knew I hadn't gotten there yet. So I decided to try and keep going. Um, and I think that's really challenging that transition for athletes between college and post-collegiate rowing or any sport. Um, in college, I got a lot of support that I totally took for granted, whether it was yeah, free bone sure. scans, you know, those are, I can't afford those now. If I break my ribs, I'm just going to have to like know it in my soul because I can't, can't afford to diagnose it or, you know, access to PTs and di the dietitian. And um, so it was really like, okay, like the rug is kind of pulled out from underneath you and you have to learn. I think rowing is really good at teaching teamwork and discipline. But what it's not good at teaching is how to think for yourself, because you're kind of on this team with a huge group and there's one training program that everyone does. And whoever is successful is whoever that training program works for or whoever makes right. that training program right. work for them. And so what you don't know when you leave college is, did that work or is that just what I've been doing? And what of those resources did I need and how do I find how to get that for myself after college? And it's going to be trial and error. Like I didn't get it right for a long time. And basically, you know, I was one of the very few people where COVID was my saving grace in a way, because it gave me a paycheck without having to work because I couldn't work. And all of a sudden I had time to rest. And I just decided one day that these things that I always thought were just too expensive for me were a worthwhile investment, whether that's receiving body work eating good quality food, hiring the dietitian that I had worked with in college who has a private practice now. And I would just say to myself, if I were an Olympian, what would I have? And making that happen for myself and figuring it out because 
I was selling myself short by trying to scrapple my way along and kind of this glorified process of like the grind where you're working and you're just like in it, in the tough environment. It's like, no, like, what do you need? Make that happen for yourself. And it's way easier said than done because it does cost money and we don't make a lot of money if, you know, if you're only working part-time. So, um, and I think that's, that's just what needs to, we need to figure out how to make that possible for more people. Um, yeah, I think that important. element. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I think that element of like self care, especially when it comes to being an athlete, is drastically overlooked. This past month, my focus has been to get eight hours of sleep every night. And that was something I haven't done in years. And now it's like, oh my God, everything is better. I feel more awake. I, I travel a ton. So it's just like crucial with jet lag and all that stuff. But my workouts have been better. And just because I'm like, okay, I'm rested. And that recovery element is always that thing that I feel like falls to the wayside because of all these other, um, whether it's like Instagram videos or just people in general who that expression that like you can sleep when you're dead. And it's like, oh, that is, that is not, especially as an athlete or someone looking to improve in general, that is not necessarily the mindset because it is so easy to have 19 other things that you, that take precedent, but like taking the time to, to get that rest. And like you're saying right now in that phase of five days after this in ridiculous accomplishment feat, like recovery is good. Recovery is necessary. So that's awesome. Oh, that kind of perspective from college to now, um, was there anything from this journey that um, like there of the 34 plus days that it took, was there one day or an hour or a period of time that you were like, uh, oh, I don't know, like just staring into the abyss or staring, you don't see land uh, anywhere. You just see stars at night. Like, was there that moment that you were just like, I don't know. Um, I think in different ways, there were a couple. Um, I think, so I slept in the stern cabin and the auto tiller arm is like literally a couple inches behind my head, like going back and forth. It's super loud. And so at night, like when we first got out, we had really big conditions, like right at the start and you don't really know what the boat is capable of or what you're capable of. And it always sounded worse than it was. So I just remember trying to sleep and like waking up because literally my body probably just dropped six feet, you know, or just like moving sideways and you hear the auto tiller. I'm like, Rah! And you're like, oh my God, like we are going yeah. to flip. Like there's no way. And then you get out on deck and you're like, okay, everyone's still here. And then you start rowing. You're like, this is pretty fun. Like this feels like, I don't know, not that I'm good enough at anything to do a half pipe, but I would imagine, you know, like you jumping off and sliding down. I'm like, this is pretty cool. So I think just laying in the cabin, like hearing it is really like fed the fear, you know, of like, is this going to be okay? And then I think really mentally, one of the big takeaways was like how easily a lot of us like had an expectation that was based off of very little information that we put a lot of weight into. So for example, we were told the first half is really hard. Like getting off the continental shelf is really hard. And then after that, it's just straight to Hawaii. You'll have a tailwind. It'll be great. And so we were ready for it to be hard. And then, and it was, and we're great. We got this. The second half, we were not ready for it to be hard. We were ready for it to be easy. We were ready for it to be fast. We were ready for big waves that were going to push us all the way to Hawaii. And we ended up with five days of a brutal headwind where we were like barely going and not. 
and having to pull so hard, you know, weeks into this journey, you're not pulling, you don't have the same strength that you had when you started. And I think all of us had kind of some of those moments of like, I mean, it's not a question of if we're going to keep going. Cause like the only way out of this is through, but like, this sucks. Like, this is like, I'm not having fun right now. And, you know, 90% of the time I had fun, but like, there was definitely times in those moments where it was just like, okay, like lesson learned. Like if you don't, you know, if someone's just saying something offhandedly, maybe you don't build a whole expectation around it and like, believe it to be fact. And then like, have that be your guiding light that gets you through something like Mm. maybe just say, okay, that's a, maybe someone said something about it, you know? And, um, it was, it was so powerful. Those expectations. I have a multi-layered question for you. (laughs) Get ready. Um, so obviously you've done like a ton of training. I've been there when you you're training. I know you grind. I know you work really hard. How different was the regular kind of Olympic style rowing training versus what you were doing. Cause I remember seeing you once you've announced that you're going to be part of this team, I I'm watching you do, I don't know how many hundreds of kilometers on the erg and then going for a run and then doing some lift session. And I'm like, Whoa, that's beyond anything I've ever done. And I'm like, good for her. But like, how, how was that kind of training? And then, and then go into a little bit, like how, how were you able to keep up actually doing the 34 days, you know, because obviously you can train really hard and do all this stuff in preparation, but once you're 34 days into it, like, what are you doing to like, stay up at night to, to stay hydrated and all, and, you know, fed, because I'm sure at one point you're like, your body's like, I'm on the verge of giving up. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, the physical aspect, totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So training was, it was awesome. We, we didn't really have a coach. There's kind of this coach in the UK who trains all the ocean rowers and we're like, are we going to work with him? I don't know. And it just wasn't happening. And I kind of just Googled running groups because I just had been training on my own. And I was like, I just want a a group of people. Like, is there a club that meets up and like runs five miles or something? And I found this like page on the internet. And at the very bottom, it just said Jason Smith endurance coach and a phone number. And I was like, endurance coach, very vague. I will call. And I called him. (laughs) Um, It turns out he's trained all sorts of people. He's his background is in triathlons but he's trained like race car drivers and like ultimate frisbee players and like all these kinds of people and he just seemed like a really great fit because he was really creative and really passionate and um so I hired him for the team and yeah our training it started off kind of similar to what I was used to you know a couple ergs a week two lifts a week um do some cross training and we just slowly started to increase volume on the erg. And one of the things that was really hard for me was to watch my split go up because when you sit on the erg for eight plus hours a day, you're not going to be holding two Oh fives for steady state anymore. (laughs) If you're going to see some thirties, you're going to see some (laughs) twenties like, Oh wow. Like I, I was like, Oh my God, I've never seen that number before for this long. This is really embarrassing, but this is what I need. And um, so some of it was just sitting on your butt for that long and like, help letting your hips figure out that like they're okay. And, um, you know, we even got in some ultras, you know, we have a really famous trail in um, Santa Barbara called nine trails, which connects all of our front country trails together in an out and back. And we did most of that one day, we did like a 30 mile hike out to a hot spring and back. Um, 
So a lot of that was just kind of just endurance, the mental side of like my feet hurt, but I can still walk. So I'm going to still walk. Um, and then there was, you know, just being uncomfortable. Like we had some pool workouts. I'm not a swimmer. So even just having to be underwater and not freak out was like a way to train for me. Um, and then building muscle was really important because as you said, you're not going to be able to really fuel enough no matter how much you're trying to eat. Um, and so your body burns a lot of fat, but it also starts to metabolize other tissues in your body, including muscle. And so if you don't have enough muscle to sustain that, or to still have some left over, then those are muscles that you really need to protect your joints and your bones. So, um, the training was really about just being as robust an athlete and just kind of like bulletproof, like, yeah, throw whatever at me and I'll be okay. And, um, in terms of actually being out there, there's this weird phenomenon where like your body adapts and like, whether you will it to or not, it will. And I was really interested in kind of feeling what it feels like to be at my limit. And it turns out that your body doesn't actually let you feel that you go into shock or you, you know, just, it felt like a normal day. And I am not joking when I say I was in more pain you know, my freshman year of college, as my body was figuring out that new training load, my lower back hurt every day. I was in more pain that year than I was at any point in this row. And I would also say I was lucky that having my orthopedic massage background, like when impingement issues came up, yeah. I was able to have kind of quick fixes in my toolbox of stretches or mobility or, you know, um, ways to create space in the joint that could help my teammates and I out, um, which was really valuable as well. I discovered caffeine at like 27 years old. Was that a big oh God, part yeah. of this trip? Um, in a way it was, I realized I love having my coffee in the morning. Um, but I did have a hard time with the night shifts at the beginning, especially cause there was very little light. So I ended up switching and having my caffeine at midnight so that I could stay awake for my night shift. Um, and we had a, a lucky sponsor with Alpine Start Foods. They do instant coffee. Um, and they actually have a new product called um, Coffee with Benefits. So it has like MCT oil and like all these other cool additives in cool. it um, that we used. And I would just basically put it in with a, a shake with like Scratch Labs, like sugar and protein and coffee with like benefits. <laughs> and yeah, I basically would drink that protein shake um, during my night shift. Um, with eating, it was like, you think you're going to have this like great strategy for getting all your vitamins and your minerals and like all your macronutrients and stuff. And it turned out that it's like anything that you think you can get down, you try and eat because appetites change like with yeah. sickness and just rolling around. It was like, you know what I'm going to eat. We actually, actually, we packed a bunch of cold pizza just in Ziploc bags and we stashed them all over the boat so that the first couple of days we didn't have to cook. And it was just like, I think I could eat some pizza. Okay, pizza, <laughs> you know, or That's okay, cool. peanut M&M's or whatever it was. It's just like, whatever you can eat, eat as much of it as you can. And that's enough. Like that'll get us through. That's so wild. I, uh, I, were, were there days of like, it was flat, dead flat and you could actually oh, yeah. like row this thing? Yeah, totally. We, we actually, so on the 4th of July, we were like, let's go swimming and celebrate. And then it was a terrible headwind and we were all grumpy and we were like, let's not do it. And we woke up the next day and it was exactly that dead flat, glassy, beautiful. And we put out a drogue basically just off of the stern. It's kind of like if you're rowing and you put a can out to drag it. But basically the point is it's just something small. It's not going to stop your boat. It'll just slow the drift. And 
um, keep the boat pointed in the right direction. So we put out a drogue and we went swimming and came back in and we were actually drifting towards Hawaii. And it was one of the first times that we had like truly favorable conditions. And we were like, wait, there's no wind, but we're drifting towards Hawaii. And we get in and we start rowing. We're going three and a half knots with no wind. And it was like the best day ever. It was like, we got to go swimming. We're going fast. Like it's flat. Like this is crazy. How did your... I try, I've been trying to see if I can see your hands. Oh. How, how did the hands hold up? Oh, they look you know, good. They are good. Honest, like I can honestly say, like, um, it's kind of like in flat water rowing. I think hygiene is underrated. If you wash your hands, your hands stay pretty okay. And kind of same thing here. I ended up using gloves, which is a big taboo in flat water rowing. But um, that's another cool lesson from this is like in flat water rowing, there's a lot of toughness points that you get from just following the status quo and in open water rowing or, you know, co- ocean rowing, it's like, yeah, you have enough toughness points. Take like, take whatever yeah. you can get, like take care yeah. of yourself. And so what I did is I had these gloves that are actually sailing gloves. So they are really thick on the pads so that when you're like holding lines and stuff, they don't cut through your hands. And I wore them during the daytime to keep the sun off my hands. And then I would go with bare hands at night when there was no sun. And that mm. kind of mix was nice because it, it distributed the weight well. And um, yeah, just kept them clean. We had some good products from really like ethical companies that were like a relief bomb. Um, M&L Organics makes like one for sailors. And yeah, just try to like take good care of ourselves. And all of our hands held up really, really well. My fingers ache awesome. from just holding onto the oars, just like yeah. the grip. But yeah, that's cramps in your fingers or whatever. Yeah, okay, totally. Yeah, Sophia, that, I mean, this story is just so cool. And um, do you think someone is going to attempt to do it again in the next? Uh, like, like when was the record set before this? Do you know? Last year. Yeah. Oh. Last. So you guys got a target yeah. on your back now. <laughs> totally, and you know, it's one of those things. Records are meant to be broken, and. Um, I think ocean rowing was like, I don't know if I'll get flack for saying this, but not that cool, like in the rowing community. And, you know, I hope that people, one of the things that, you know, it got way more popular, our row got way more popular than I could have ever imagined. And I hopefully one of the takeaways is like doing what you love or doing what you like to do is cool, like period. And if someone is inspired to go out there and try and break our record, like freaking do it. Ask for, you know, I'll give you all of our, you know, hot um, tips and I've, tricks and hints and yeah, yeah totally. that's awesome. Um, yeah, let's elevate this sport for sure. And coastal rowing, I feel like, has definitely been growing in the past couple of years. So the amount of publicity and uh, that you guys brought to it is is certainly adding. Yeah, to I think that, this so. is like a little bit a little beyond coastal because you got. I mean, this, yeah. it's like a tank <laughs> in the water. Yeah, it's pretty uh, different, even from a bit off the rowing, coast. But, you know, I'm sure people are just like, oh, like there are more options, and that's kind of the point, right? It, to me, at least, is like. I think a lot of athletes and rowers are going through life being like, this is the way this is done and not realizing that everything that they've, you know, it's all a choice and you have a, a million choices out there and realizing that there are more options than you think there are. And if you're not happy with the situation you're in, like choose a different adventure. It's very awesome. simple. 
Well, we have this part of our tag along podcast that we uh, call our rapid fire section, which okay. never ends up being rapid fire. But Scott always <laughs> yells at me when I say it. that. But anyways, no, it's more of us. We always ruin it. But um, okay. so it's just a series of quick questions. Whatever pops in your head, just let us know. So what is now that you're on land, you're, you know, taking a little breather. What is your go to snack? It was on the boat. It was before the row. It'll always be salami with seeded crackers and some dried fruit. Okay, nice. We haven't had that one. Um, what's a secret hobby or interest that people don't know about you? Secret hobby or interest um, that people don't know about me. I love music and singing. Yes. I thought you'd say that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but you knew that about her. <laughs> All right. Well, I, we, we'll skip this one because the last, the question is last hard workout that you did, but I feel like that was very much accomplished. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you got through 10. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. All right. Um, if you could tag along with one athlete, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, Courtney DeWalter, ultra runner extraordinaire. Very cool. Why? Um, I think she really embodies just kind of like joy and freedom and, and high performance at the same time. She's got an awesome attitude. She's just kind of like, I'm pretty sure her training program is like go outside and run for as long as I feel like running. And then she goes out and like beats all the dudes and like wins all these like crazy mountain ultras and does it with a smile on her face. And she doesn't win every time also like, um, sometimes she has a good day and sometimes she doesn't and just kind of is really honest about it. And I just really, I think I just admire her attitude and her like hard work and, um, not afraid of working hard and yeah, she just is really cool. I totally look up to her. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, last question. Uh, do you have a favorite quote or mantra or advice that you live by? Oh my gosh. I have so many, but I'll pick one. <laughs> okay I'm gonna steal one from Libby that she said the other day um and it's about kind of like this idea you guys didn't ask this question but for some reason a lot of people ask about like the selfishness of pursuing athletics and like how you're not helping anyone and um Libby said this awesome thing that was like why don't we all just have enough self-respect to do something for ourselves um it like, it's okay. You don't have to be yeah. saving the world. You can just do something that really brings you joy. And like, honestly, if you're not doing it, who else is supposed to for you? So yeah, I'll do that. Don't be, don't, don't get into the selfishness trap. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I love that. That's awesome. Well, Sophia, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Great to finally meet you and uh, look forward to seeing what happens with this record. And, uh, you know, how you recover through all this, but uh, definitely keep us posted. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Nice to meet you, Nick. And see you, Scott. See you later.